This is an ABC podcast. One year on from the peak of the costliest flood disaster in Australian history, and while the rebuild continues, the mental struggle is something else. It's still actually traumatic, like it's very traumatic for me to go over the bridge. I walked over it the other day and I probably won't ever walk back over it. The floods was actually the easy part. It's living with what the floods left us with. has been really hard. An engineered stone is potentially on the chopping block amid concerns the product could become the next asbestos. But not everyone believes prohibition is needed. There's no dust around whatsoever and yeah, I, I have full confidence walking down here. The boys never do any dry cutting here. It's just not allowed. I'm Adam Stephen, and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Yudinji country in far north Queensland. Rivers swallowing streets, towns torn asunder, displaced people living in tents. The East Coast floods of 2022 were both deadly and devastating. They were also the costliest flood and natural disaster on record, with insurance losses north of $5.6 billion. One year on, the ABC's Leah White caught up with some of the hardest-hit residents of the far north coast of northern New South Wales, including Bianca Pope. Now, you might have seen Bianca at the time. She was captured carrying her dog through raging floodwaters as the disaster was unfolding. A highway turned into a shipping lane for a mass civilian rescue. Wading through waist-deep water, carrying her best mate, was South Lismore resident Bianca Pope. Every time I see that photo, I just think, how did I do that? I had some Hulk, sort of superwoman, like, invincible person over me just saying, look, I need to save my baby. I don't even have that much strength because I still try and pick her up some days now and I'm like, oh, what have I done? Like, she's so heavy, so... I don't know what got in me that day. I guess when you hit that, like, survival mode, you just, your whole body is just absolutely, you can do anything. You just, you're invincible. And it shows me how much of a dedication I was to just be so, like, no, I want my baby and she's coming with me no matter what. I was very dedicated. (laughs) Superwoman I was. It's been a roller coaster year of rebuilding for the 21 year old, made just that bit easier by having Nala by her side. It's still actually traumatic, like, it's very traumatic for me to go over the bridge. I walked over it the other day and I probably won't ever walk back over it. It's just too daunting. Like, it's just like, oh my God, I'm at, like, remember that? What the hell? Driving over it is actually very almost like major PTSD. I can't look at the water or if it's a foggy morning, I'll almost start being sick in the car because it's just like, whoa, that looks like water when it's not. It's almost weird to think because you almost go, oh my God, the bridge had that much water. Imagine if you were underneath it. I just want to say of how proud I am of myself. I've came from being such a child where I sort of thought I had my world and everything just placed at me because I had everything working perfectly for me. I started my business. I, everything was just perfect. And then for this to happen and for me to just turn around and stick through it, dedicate myself and pick myself all the way back up, even though nothing's perfect, I'm quite proud to be where I am now and not 10 steps further back. If I looked back and said the words... To my face, if I could say it to my face, I'd go, look, it's going to be the most toughest year you'll ever imagine, ever, in your whole entire life. 
but you will definitely be able to get through it. Like, there's days where you don't want to get out of bed. There's days that you don't even want to be in this world because it's the same thing. You walk outside and there's houses broken, shops broken, you don't have anything normal. It's very eye-opening in a way. It's very eye-opening and going, wow, you just need your family because that's really, that's who's there for you mainly. Downstream, there was a nervous wait for Bungawalban resident Mark O'Toole, who was winched off his roof by a Defence Force helicopter along with his son and neighbour. The floods was actually the easy part there for this whole scenario we've been through. It's living with the floods. It's living with what the floods left us with. It's been really hard. Like we basically, about two months after the floods, we just about cleaned everybody's houses out in town and we're all still at that same position. We haven't progressed forward in any way. We've been promised this grant, that grant, apply for this one, apply for that one, and we're all waiting. And a lot of us don't even know what we're actually, what grant we're even waiting for now. It's been that many of them. And nothing's happened. Nothing's moved forward. A year on, Mark is yet to make peace with the river that almost cost him his life. It's funny, like, when we first moved here, the house is just about all glass. You can sit anywhere and look at the river. I'm cancer, so I'm like a water sign, so I'm drawn to the water. But now it's like a weird feeling, and I don't really know how to describe it. When I, you know, when I look at the river, I talk about the place. You know, you always say, "Oh yeah, we're on the river," and when you say that now, you feel funny saying it. Whereas before, that was a good thing. Now I'm not, don't know what it is. Like we love the property, but it worries me what's ahead. You know, it's always in your mind. You know, are we going to? Are we trying to rebuild? Even though I haven't been able to, but are you trying to rebuild and is, is, is it all worth it? Is it just going to get washed away again? Across the region, community hubs like Chindera are still in high demand. You've got a lot of people that are still displaced from the floods, um, still trying to get their homes together back to where they were prior to the flood. Um, we offer food support. You know, people are really struggling with cost of living at the moment on top of what's happened with the flood. Um, so we're just trying to support them mentally with mental health support, um, material aid, anything from knife and fork to lounges and fridges if we can get them for them. There's a lot of people that are still displaced and are in temporary accommodation. So we've got people living in motels still. We've dealt with a lady that um, has come in in the last week. She's a mum and a husband with two little kids that are special needs. They've been in a motel room since the flood. Um, the motel room wasn't big enough for the husband to live there, so he's had to live elsewhere. Um, and that's you looking 12 months on, living in one motel room, family of three, no cooking facilities. It's really tough on these people. Look, there's a mixed bag of emotions for people that are coming in. Um, it's triggering, remembering that we're one year on from such a big event. Um, some people are okay. But, you know, we've got people reaching out now going, it's, I'm feeling triggered, I need a little bit of help, I need some counselling. And that was Kate Redman from the Chindera Flood Recovery Hub in the Tweed, ending that report from Leah White. In the aftermath of the East Coast floods, the New South Wales and Queensland governments committed hundreds of millions of dollars towards voluntary property buyback schemes. These are seen by some as a necessary tool for tackling the worst of what could be to come with a changing climate. Climate risk assessor Dr Carl Mallon predicts schemes like this are going to end up being required across Australia. Look, it's a really important step, which is to recognise that, uh, it, you know, if you give someone planning permission 
to build a house in an area and then later they find out that it's in a high-risk flood zone, that there is a level of responsibility on local councils and state governments to either get those people out of harm's way once people once we all realize or assist them to make those homes suitable for the locations that they're in why do you think managed retreat has been well something that we just haven't wanted to engage with there's three um, main reasons okay one of them is um is is the myth that it's expensive okay now it, when you buy back a house you might go well hang on the taxpayer's got to buy that house for half a million dollars but don't forget that a local council can at the same time release a piece of land where another house can be built with equivalent value. So in actual fact, the, the costs are a little bit swings and roundabouts because state governments create value out of thin air by subdivision. And the second one is, is communities themselves have been very resistant to being categorized in these things. You, you, we've seen this effect that uh, people don't want to talk about coastal inundation or sea level rise or flood zones or whatever because they don't want the taint of that to their communities but when your community is untenable or when your house is unlivable then it's you know that the, the sentiment has has moved and people are realizing that um that you you know you can't put your head in the sand now the last one is a little bit tricky and this is about land value and developers and there's been continued development of land in high-risk zones. And that's made it very awkward for state governments and councils to say, well, this is a flood zone, because as soon as you do that, you've drastically reduced the value of a developer's land or a land bank holders. And, and those guys are litigious. Yeah, basically they'll, you know, they, they, they get the lawyer out and say, well, if you turn that into a flood zone, then I've lost this much money and, and, and I'm going to come for compensation. So, so those are three of the reasons why it's been very difficult in the past to have these hard conversations about flood zones and getting people out of these zones. Lismore Council last year estimated the cost of relocating just 1,000 of the most flood-prone properties at half a billion dollars. Nationally, what figure would we be looking at? Yeah, well, there you go. The math is pretty simple. You've just said that for a thousand properties. I can tell you from our numbers that we're looking at maybe 300,000 properties today being at risk and going up to 700,000 once we have sea level rise and more climate extremes kicking in. So these are big numbers. We're looking at, you know, 150 to, you know, $150 billion, you know, off the bat in terms of the sorts of numbers that we could be looking at in, in terms of the cost to the, um, in terms of the cost of either relocating or getting some of these um, these properties adapted for extreme weather. In 2017, when Lismore experienced a major flood, at that time it was estimated about 80% of the households impacted were in the lowest 20% of income earners. What does that tell us about what we need to be thinking about in terms of longer-term planning? You know, this we're seeing this already. Uh, you know, if you've been reading the papers like I have, you see that some of these people are so desperate they're selling their houses off at half half price. Now, who's buying those houses? Someone's buying those house knowing full well they're in a flood zone, and that's because they don't have any other choices. So you could see a first home buyer or young family moving in, going, "Look, we couldn't afford anything elsewhere, but look at this. You know, we'll buy this house. Probably just unlucky that there were some floods." Now, scientifically, we would say that wasn't unlucky. That was that was waiting to happen, and there's going to be more. 
this raises questions a which is we've got the people least able to cope buying those houses they're not going to have insurance you know it, we we get this idea of climate ghettos which is you only get people at the sort of lowest end of the the socioeconomic um, spectrum going into these high risk zones so it's a very bad combination of high risk housing with low re- low resilience families and look you know i have to ask who's giving these guys the mortgages you know you'd have to be sitting under a rock to not know that these are in flood zones so mortgage lenders are supposed to know that that that, that these houses are insured and and they must know that that no one's giving out insurance on these properties anymore so there's something fishy in all of this that was Dr. Carl Mallon. He is the CEO of Climate Valuation. That's a company that assesses houses for home buyers and banks. You're listening to Australia Wide. It's a species that I have been fighting for. Growing up in the bush is such a special thing. So when the rain does come, we've, we've got a few numbers. Got a... never come? Put a feather in your cap. ABC Radio. And it's Adam Stephen with you. The use of engineered stone in household benchtops could soon be on the chopping block with state, territory and federal workplace health and safety ministers agreeing to consider a nationwide ban. Today's decision follows months of calls to eliminate the product from the Australian market due to its potential to cause lung cancer and silicosis, an incurable lung disease caused by breathing in tiny particles of silica, which is a serious threat to workers that cut or filed engineer stones. One operator, though, says it's already gone to pretty expensive lengths to eliminate the risk. The ABC's Charlie McKillop visited the Pacific Kitchens workshop in Cairns, where operations manager Aaron Flint gave her a tour of the factory floor. Everything needs to be wet cut for um, stone manufacture. That's one thing we've really focused on. All our grinders, polishers, they all have water running through them. Their edge polishing machine all has water running through it. Every machine you see there has water running through it. So we keep the um, dust wet the whole time so it doesn't get airborne. Um, The boys have all got respirators they've got to wear. We can't see any just at the moment. What, have I come at Smoko? You've come at Smoko, yep. (laughs) Perfect timing. So they're they're all sitting down having lunch at the moment. But, yeah, they have a respirator that they have to wear. It gets checked 12 monthly. If it needs new parts, we get new parts put on it, new curtains, things like that. The filters have got to be replaced regularly. We get air quality tests done. It was six monthly, but now it's 12 monthly after the uh, couple of years of been having this factory. The other thing the guys have to do is the health screening. So that's done on a 12 monthly basis. Anyone new that starts, before they start, they have to have that health screen and lung scan as well so we know where they're at. And then we have a little reminder for when the boys are due, 12 monthly, make sure there's no silica buildup or anything like that in their lungs and their health's all good and that way they can keep moving forward and, and keep using the product properly, I guess. How confident do you feel coming in here if it was in full use, masked up? You, uh, you feel like it's a safe workplace, somewhere that you'd work? Yeah, definitely. We really pride ourselves on our staff and we want to look after them as well as we possibly can. So, I mean, now, even standing here in the air, it still does smell fairly fresh. There's no dust around whatsoever. And, yeah, I, I have full confidence walking down here. The, the boys never do any dry cutting here. It's just not allowed. What's the difference? Why is there still dry cutting if that's the, the high risk? That's what's associated with the dust and the dust diseases. The only thing I could really think of is laziness. You've got to set up more machinery. You've got to set up that, that wet, wet cutting process. People probably just 
think they can pull out their grinder quickly and oh look this is going to be a little cut I'll just quickly cut it it won't make any difference that's all, all it really comes down to we, we try and do everything in factory where it can be cut wet you sort of try and limit what you need to cut on site to maybe drilling a small hole or something like that where, you, where it's um, quite easy to keep that dust down and wet what about when this floor dries what about the the residue or the sediment that's left behind so what we make sure we do every day is the boys clean this while it's still wet and make sure we clean it right down. We've got filters in the drain as well there so they can hose it all down, broom it into the drains. We just don't let the dust dry. It gets clean before it gets to that point. And also there's a grate that runs along under the machines where it can get hosed back into the grate. That grate then gets fed into their water filtration. There is no cure. So if, if that were to happen, I mean, it would be on your conscience in that case. Definitely. I mean, that, that's right. You, you spend a lot of your time with these guys and I guess we've got we to gotta treat each other like family as well and, and make sure that that doesn't happen. Are you convinced that the regulations have gone far enough? From what I see in our guys, the way we operate here, it, it's, it's pretty good. We've been in a good place and hopefully that, that stays that way and, and we haven't had any silica cases and, and hopefully never do. So I don't know, unless they come up with some more technology that we can look into, but yeah. Aaron Flint, you alluded to some of the media coverage just, just uh, arising, some more case studies kind of being brought forward about silicosis and some of the other related dust diseases. What do you make of the calls that are, have come saying that there, shouldn't, there just shouldn't be these products? It's totally understandable where these calls are coming from. Um, you see what's happened to some people. So I don't know if it should be a, a call to so much as ban the, the product, but, but to improve it. There are products there that are very low in silica um, and, and very safe to use, so maybe it should be more the case where we're making sure that that silica content is brought right down or, or eradicated altogether if possible. Looks like your boys are getting ready to mobilise. Does that mean if I wanted to stay here, there's no way I could do that without a mask? Yeah, so if we were to stay here now, then the requirement would be, obviously, we, start, we wear a respirator, like you can see the boys are wearing now. Although... We don't have the airborne dust, we still require everyone to take that precaution, so that could be our cue to move out of this area. It's a different environment though. Has this affected people's willingness or desire to be involved? We are struggling to find stonemasons. These guys have been in it for a while and they, they know the product themselves and they take every precaution, but trying to get new people into the industry, well, that's going to be a challenge. They get danger money? They do get a lot more allowances, these guys, than our cabinet makers on the other side. Hey, um, Aaron, can we have a look at the finished product? Sure, yep. We'll, we'll go into the showroom and have a look. Okay. It was Aaron Flint from Pacific Kitchens in Cairns, ending that report from Charlie McKillop. And Federal Workplace Relations Minister Tony Burke says he and his state and territory counterparts have approached SafeWork Australia to work out what shape a ban on engineered stone might take. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. Every year, thousands of high school students travel to our country to learn the English language. Sadly, though, some never return home. Following the drowning death of an English language student in a backyard spa, Last year, the founder of a Sunshine Coast program has added a water safety addition to their curriculum. And the ABC's Sunshine Coast, Annie Gaffney, has the story. 
The program consists of free learn-to-swim classes, followed by participation in a beach safety awareness program run by a local surf club. Marilyn Keelty is hoping the pilot program will ultimately be rolled out nationally in a bid to prevent drowning deaths. She said it was the words of a social worker at a local hospital that spurred her into action. She said to me, this situation is not unusual, i.e. the death of an international student by drowning is quite common. And students drown in Australia every year. They drown on our beaches, they drown in our rivers and they drown in our pools. And this is preventable. These deaths should not be happening. We know that there is a problem and we can fix it. So we have set up a swimming program in memory of Esther. It's a unique program and we wish to spread it right across Australia. Esther's not alone in being an international student who sadly has drowned on the Sunshine Coast not long after an Indian student drowned here in November of the same year in 2022. We've had uh, a young woman die from drowning on the Gold Coast in the same month and a couple of years before then two Japanese students on Gari, Fraser Island, tragically lost their lives in a drowning incident as well. How many students come from overseas to study at any of our institutions here on the Sunshine Coast every year? Any idea? Yes, I do. There are over 2,000 students. So it's a huge cohort, really, of it is. very diverse cultural backgrounds. And most of these students state that they choose to study at the Sunshine Coast because they want to experience our beach culture. However, most of them have very little, if any, swimming ability and no understanding of surfing conditions. Even if they can swim, they cannot read our surf. That's just unique swimming. Rob Elford is the president of the Marucci Surf Lifesaving Club, where today up to 70 international students participated in the beach safety awareness program run by his volunteers. He believes the pilot program, with its focus on these students, is unique. Some of the students come from landlocked countries. I mean, they see the surf when they come here, you know, probably for the, the, one of the first times, and with no knowledge or awareness of what has to happen and it all looks very nice and very pretty, and, but yeah, there are dangers. I think a lot of the clubs already run surf safety programs. It's an educational thing for local, but as far as the foreign students go, I don't know of any other program that targets specifically those. And I think because the university and, and all our education facilities that, that we've got here have such an influx of foreign students, those areas that actually have foreign student influx I think we'll have a look at what we're doing and I think once the pilots run through its paces and we tweak it at the end, it'll be for everybody. So, yeah, we're hopeful. It will go national. Today, the students were put through their paces at the beach. Jorge from Chile said he'd learnt some important information. We're learning about the, in between the flags. We need to just always swim in that area. And we need to be very careful uh, when we are going at night, probably don't do it. And also we learn okay, we need to be in groups, each other. We need to go into the water alone. And I think it's very nice to, be, uh, to learn about the signals of the beach and uh, how the lifeguards in uh, Australia do it. Marina from Brazil said she'd learned how to ask for help if she got into trouble in the surf. We learn about the meaning of the flags, about the rips and about some 
things that we need to take care because of our life, because of the life of our mates. One thing that they said that is really important and got me uh, was the, about the how can you ask for help, you know? So you need to stay calm. <laughs> if it was before, I just gonna freak out, you know, because it seems really stressful situation. So that was Marina, an English language student from Brazil, ending that story from the ABC's Annie Gaffney. And that's it for Australia Wide for this Tuesday. Remember, you can podcast the show or listen back to the program through the ABC Listen app or by visiting the Australia Wide website. And you just search for ABC Australia Wide. My name's Adam Stephen, filling in for Sinead Mangan for the rest of the week. So I'll catch you tomorrow at the same time for Australia Wide. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.